This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. We're approaching the peak of the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season, so today we're going to listen back to a conversation we had on this show back in October of 2022 about a new book that was just about to go to press when Ian hit southwest Florida. Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes is part history of hurricanes that have impacted southwest Florida and part warning about this area's severe risk from hurricanes and storm surge. It was still in pre-publication when we had this conversation. Tom Hall, the author, had shared a digital version with me. After Ian hit, he and his publisher decided to wait to release the book until around the storm's one-year anniversary because they felt that's when people would be thinking in terms of not only the storm, but also wanting to find answers as to why it was so devastating and whether we could experience a repeat with future storms. It's now due to be released at the end of September. Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes opens with a hurricane in 1841 that swept across the region, making landfall near Sanibel Island and bringing a 14-foot storm surge to the U.S. Army Fort on Punta Rasa. It was after that devastating event that the Army looked further inland for a safer place to build a fort, which is effectively why Fort Myers is where it is today. But this new book also includes data on just how at risk we are to storm surge and inland flooding here in southwest Florida. We sat down with Tom Hall and Wink News Chief Meteorologist Matt Devitt, who contributed to Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes. Again, this conversation happened on October 17th, 2022, so just weeks after Hurricane Ian made landfall. Let's hear that now. Tom Hall is author of Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes. He's also founder of ArtSouthwestFlorida.com and WGCU's arts correspondent. Tom, welcome back to the show. Mike, thank you for having me on. And Matt Devitt is chief meteorologist at Wink News in Fort Myers. He also contributed to this new book. Matt, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to contribute. So for starters, just wow. I texted you yesterday as I was reading it. You know, I almost felt like I was in an alternative universe as I read through this book because so much of it directly echoes not only what we went through in terms of past storms, but the kinds of warnings you were putting into the book. Tom, were you thinking about this book that you just put out as this hurricane made landfall? Yes, I was actually beating myself up because um – it turned out to be eerily uh, prescient uh, in, in terms of what happened. Uh, Matt, did this book and what it contains cross your mind at all as you covered Ian's landfall? Absolutely. And I remember the 24 and 48 hours before the storm with some of the forecasts, I thought of Tom's references in the book, especially when it came to uh, storms in the 19th century and what they did to southwest Florida and specifically with surge around Panarasa, and I thought that was a worst-case scenario, and it looks like with Ian, it's going to unfold as a worst-case scenario as well, and unfortunately, that came to be the case. Tom, can you read, I printed out a a passage from the book from Chapter 2, and I just want to have you read that, and then we'll pick it up from there. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. While the coast extending from Wiggins Pass to Boca Grande has not experienced a peak high water mark exceeding 14 feet since the hurricanes of 1841 and 1873, there is every reason to believe that Fort Myers could receive storm tides well in excess of that level from a major Cat 3, 4, or 5 hurricane striking from the west or southwest and making landfall above or at the mouth of the Caloosahatchee River. A sober, dispassionate examination of the risks and dangers posed by storm tide leads to a single inescapable conclusion. When, not if, that happens, residents and visitors in the path of this storm will not be able to ride out the surge unleashed by the storm. 
you know, that's just one of many passages that I read in this book that just really were almost chilling to me. And as someone who grew up here, there was so much in this book about our risk for storm surge that I was unaware of because I've been here since 1980 and it seems like the storms never live up to the predicted storm surge. So I thought maybe we were in some way geographically protected or something like that. Can you just talk about the research that you've put in this book and just the data that we have in terms of how at risk Southwest Florida is for storm surge. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, and and it, was, it was surprising to me. Uh, I initially started the book more to research uh, some of our old hurricanes, uh, as I mentioned, 1841, 1873. And we'll get to the details of that one in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but we hadn't had a surge event like that uh, 150 years. Uh, but as I started to do research on surge, and, and my research was really rather copious, what I uh, was shocked to discover is that from uh, all of the cities that dot the coast from the southern tip of uh, Texas to the northern tip of Maine, uh, we're actually the number six uh, city most at risk for surge in terms of the number of single-family and multiple-family residences that are at risk. And this isn't just the Barrier Islands. This is Lee County, right? That's correct. Hmm. Matt, how long have you been at Wink? I've been at Wink for almost nearly seven years. Um, how many hurricanes and severe storms have you covered either at Wink or just in your career? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, several. Uh, most notably, Irma in 2017. And Irma, granted, had a significant impact in southwest Florida, but it was different. And that's the one thing during Ian coverage I, I kept stressing is that Every storm is different. It depends on the angle of approach, depends on the speed, the size, you name it. And I think one of the pitfalls that a lot of people ran into, and I I cautioned against this, was to not compare previous experiences to Ian. Ian is going to be worse. Ian is literally making landfall, as Tom noted, in one of our worst-case scenario spots. And unfortunately, that's what came to fruition. The data that Tom was just pointing to about this being such an at-risk area, is that all something that you are aware of as someone who does what you do? Correct. Uh, Our coastline, compared to, let's say, the Atlantic, is different in two particular ways. First off, it has to do with the, the Gulf floor. And there's a gradual slope compared to a more drastic slope along the Atlantic and the East Coast. And then also, we also, when it comes to our elevation and and going several miles inland, is also more gradual compared to, let's say, the East Coast. So the the surge element and the surge threat compared to, let's say, us versus Melbourne, Cocoa Beach, and that area, we are a lot more susceptible. And we just found that out, Sanibel, Fort Myers Beach, where the National Hurricane Center just yesterday confirmed at least 10 to 15 feet has been reported on Fort Myers Beach. Um, Like I mentioned, you know, having grown up here, I've seen a lot of storms come. They warn us about storm surge. It never seems to play out. Tom, you just said it's been about 150 years. Um, Does that mean we just we've just gotten lucky? Well, yes, in a certain respect. Uh, If I could amplify on a point that Matt made earlier, what puts us most at risk here is the topography of the of the sea floor off the coast of, of southwest Florida. I was astonished when I looked at the, uh, at the maps of, of that area. Uh, and 
what I found was is there's it's called the West Florida Shelf, and it, it extends about a hundred miles to the west of of our coastline. At its deepest, it's only three hundred feet, but say fifteen miles out, the depth goes to just fifty feet, and then it gradually moves in at maybe a foot per mile until it reaches the shore. So what happens in a in a hurricane is the winds drive the water down. On the Atlantic side, as Matt was alluding to, it's deep enough that the downward pressure can be dissipated. When your floor is only 40, 50 feet deep for a, a, a length of 40 or 50 miles, there's nowhere for that water to dissipate. And so just like a front-end loader will pile up dirt in front of it as it's scraping the ground, when a hurricane is coming in at the right angle of approach, all that water just keeps piling up and up and up because there's nowhere else for it to go. And that's what puts us most at risk if the angle of approach is wrong. And the angle of approach uh, that Ian took, of course, kind of scraped the coast and then, then veered in. Uh, an even worse case storm would be the, uh, the, uh, a storm the size of Ian and the wind speed of Ian coming in due east off the Yucatan. Matt, I'll direct this one at you. Uh, Hurricane Charlie, which hit this area in 2004, um, it tracked very similarly to Ian. Uh, it was faster moving. It was smaller. We didn't really see storm surge. Can you describe sort of is it is because it was fast moving and smaller? Is that why we didn't get storm surge from Charlie like we did from Ian? Exactly right. So the thing with Charlie is it also was rapidly intensifying as it approached the coastline. So the best way to think about it is, yes, it generated cat four wind, but think of the storm surge as almost delayed. It didn't have enough time for that wind to really generate cat four surge. And like you had also noted, it was a small, compact storm, and the area of 150 mile prior wind, and we always need to keep in mind that wind is a force, in that 150-mile-per-hour wind force was over such a small part of the storm. Now, granted, for those who saw it, they did see that maximum corridor of surge, but it wasn't to the scope of Ian. Ian was literally two to three times as big as Charlie, but not as big as Irma. Irma was an absolute monster. So Ian was kind of, I wouldn't say in the middle, but probably closer to, to the size of Irma, just, just shy of it. But because of the fact that it was moving slower, because of the angle of approach, the, the size of it, just one, two, three, all the dynamics were there to generate the surge that it was capable of. And again, to answer your question, because it was moving at a faster clip and because it was rapidly strengthening towards landfall, it wasn't able to have enough time to generate at four surge. Now, what can happen on the flip side, and Katrina was a classic example of this in the northern Gulf Coast, you know, Katrina maximized in strength as a Category 5 in the central Gulf, and then it did, quote-unquote, weaken as it approached the northern Gulf. So even though it weakened to a Category 3, it still maintained the Category 5 storm surge. So that's something to keep in mind is even if hypothetically a storm is, is quote unquote weakening towards landfall, there are times where it can still generate a category or two above its max strength when it comes to surge. And that was the case with Katrina and why it was so deadly. 
Tom, you, we've alluded to the hurricane of 1841. Your book opens with a story about this storm that hit Punarasa, well, all of southwest Florida, but there was a, a fort on Punarasa. And, and it's like it's like this storm. Tell us the story of, of that hurricane and, 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 and why Fort Myers is where it is now uh, because of it. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Uh, so you're right. There was a fort that was uh, – it's actually – the construction began in 1838. And it was little really more than a, than a depot, maybe a couple of warehouses. But as the Second Seminole Indian War dragged on, uh, they decided that they needed to expand it and make it into a central supply depot. So they added barracks and a hospital and some other structures. Uh, they did that all in the uh, late summer of 1841. And – of course, at that time, there really was no hurricane um, you know, prediction. Couldn't see past the horizon, basically. Exactly. Uh, although the, the, you know, the Weather Service did have an outpost on Sanibel, but they had discontinued it be, you know, for, for, in essence, lack of use. And so these uh, poor soldiers, and there probably were 100 or more in the fort at the time, you know, the storm just came upon them unsuspecting. As best Matt and I can determine, it looks like the center of the eye probably made landfall about uh, anywhere from three to five miles to the uh, to the west of the Sanibel Lighthouse. But it was enough to cover all of Punarasa with 14 feet of inundation. Now, we don't know what the amount of the storm surge was, but in essence, based on the high water mark that they could take off of the trees, they know that the depth of the water, you know, including the surge and the tide and the waves, was 14 feet. It was enough to disintegrate the fort and basically just destroy everything. And so the Army's solution based on that experience was twofold. Number one, don't rebuild a fort in the path of a, of a potential lethal storm. And so they moved the, the, the depot upriver to the present site of Fort Myers. And that's why Fort Myers is where it's located. And that's why we're called Fort Myers rather than Fort Delaney. Hmm. And then the second thing they did is that when they rebuilt the barracks there during the Civil War, they sunk 14-foot pilings into the substrate and cross-braced the, the barracks. And so the message there is if you have to build in the path of, uh, of a potential storm surge area, make sure that you build your, 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 your finished floor elevation at least above the, the potential height of storm surge, which is exactly what they did. Hmm. You know, one of the interesting tidbits that uh, you wrote about um, in that post-1841 storm was only Mound Key was spared, and that is because of the shell mounds constructed by the Calusa for their kings and noblemen and burial of their dead. And the first thing I did was went to the Mound House website. And there aren't many details, but it just says on the main page, Mound House survived Hurricane Ian but will be closed for repairs until further notice. And I just that was kind of a heartwarming moment for me. I do know an archaeologist by the name of Teresa Schober, who was uh, instrumental in um, repairing the, the Mount House and building it into the, uh, the museum that it is today. And I asked her if, if there was a potential that perhaps one of the functions of those mounds was to protect uh, the Calusa from hurricanes. Uh, there's no evidence one way or the other that that's the case, but it is an interesting question. We're listening back to this conversation today as we approach the peak of the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season. This conversation originally aired on October 17th of 2022, less than three weeks after Hurricane Ian swept across southwest Florida. My guests were Tom Hall. He's co-author of the book Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes and Matt Devitt. He's Tom's co-author on this book and chief meteorologist at Wink News in Fort Myers. 
Tom, what is the Southwest Florida Storm Tide Atlas, and how does it fit into this book and uh, and what we know about ourselves here in Southwest Florida when it comes to risk? That's a great question. I I was concerned with how does a particular person, no matter where they live, evaluate their risk for storm surge? Of course, we've got the evacuation zones, but that's kind of you know a little bit amorphous for most people. After um, uh, the, the hurricanes of t- 2004-2005 season, uh, the state of Florida did an evacuation study. And part of that study was the compilation of maps that were produced by the National Hurricane Center in conjunction with NOAA. And they uh, produced uh, 150 of these maps, which in essence uh, chart what your risk for inundation is depending upon where you live and what grid you live based upon a number of different uh, storm variations. I think they ran 1,200 computer models in order to come up with these maps for both Category 1 through 5 and and even some tropical storm scenarios. And it it gives you a pretty good indication of what your risk for inundation is depending upon the storm and the speed of the storm. Here's a quote that I pulled out. So, um, you know, you start at the beginning talking about coastal flooding and storm surge, but then you move to inland and you talk about Cape Coral and things like that. As we know, Cape Coral was hit very hard by Ian and received the kind of flooding that they haven't really ever experienced on record. Um, According to research conducted by First Street Foundation, 86 percent or some 111,000 properties in Cape Coral are at risk for flooding. Of those, 69% of Cape Coral's total inventory are at substantial risk of flooding. That's defined as one in four or 26% chance of flooding in the next 30 years. And that's tops in the country that has more more than 29,000 miles of coastline. So Cape Coral is at tops in the country when it comes to risk for flooding? Yes, but if you think about it, it makes sense. The average elevation of Cape Coral is about five feet or less above sea level. And there's over 450 miles of canals. And those canals, in essence, can become surge expressways if the right situation occurs. And unfortunately, Ian was that, that right situation. You also uh, talked some about the Southern Lee County Flood Mitigation Plan, uh, which was published two years ago, um, which is a countywide plan to try to make inland flooding and flooding in general um, not as serious or something like that. Can you explain what this plan is and, like, what is the arc of completion for it? Sure. So the uh, the, the, the Southwest uh, Florida or Lee County Mitigation Plan was a study that was conducted after um, in 2017 after uh, the combination of the Invest uh, 92L tropical disturbance and that was all the rain. Irma. That was all the rain we got before Irma. Correct. Right. So when you put the two storms together, we got a total of 20 inches of rain, and we had uh, you know pretty pervasive flooding. So Lee County commissioned a, a, a vast study to determine why were we getting this, this flooding and what could be done about it. Now, the recommendations that were made in terms of what can be done will take at least 20, if not more, years to fully implement. So I don't know how far along they are in terms of, of, of that progress. Uh, but assuming it takes 20 years, we're probably only about a fifth of the way there. Uh, But what was interesting about this 1,157-page study is that it actually identified all of the areas within Lee County, both in the Cape, North Fort Myers, and in South Fort Myers, uh, that are at risk for for flooding, not necessarily just from storm surge, but from the heavy rainfalls, the torrential rainfalls that are associated with all tropical systems. And one of the things that became particularly apparent to me 
is that even after all of the recommendations have been fully implemented, uh, that plan will only protect us from uh, a maximum of 16 uh, and a half inches of rain in a three-day span. Now, that's good to protect us in, in most hurricane instances. The, the average hurricane only produces 6 to 12 inches of rain. But what if we get a Hurricane Harvey or a Hurricane Florence or a Hurricane Dorian or a Hurricane Sally or a Hurricane Fiona and we get 20, 30, 40 inches of rain? Well, even the flood mitigation plan notes in, in, in you know, broad uh, capital letters – uh, all bets are off if we get a heavy rainfall like that. And, and, again, in spite of all of their best efforts to protect Lee County residents and business interests from flooding, uh, in an event like that, there's going to still be uh, very destructive and, and wide-scale and pervasive flooding. Matt, I was talking to a, a professor uh, of ecology here at FTCU, and he thought that we didn't get as much rain here from Ian as one might expect. Is that something that you can confirm or, or deny as a meteorologist? Uh, he's half right, and I'll explain. So the rainfall totals, the average south of the Caloosahatchee, was about three to nine inches. And the reason for the large range, uh, south of the Caloosahatchee, the greatest amount that I had was in Gateway, it was nine inches, and the lowest amount I had was three inches. However, north of the Caloosahatchee, that's where you had the heaviest rainfall on the northern part of the eye wall. And because Ian was just such a slow mover, the heavy rain was drawn out for six to 12 hours and the National Weather Service in Tampa just released their preliminary report, and they actually had noted Grove City between uh, Rotunda and Englewood had 26.95 inches of rain. So literally almost 27 inches of rain. Fort Charlotte had about 22 to 23, and then Arcadia had about 12 to 15 inches. So there was there were some big totals and some heavy rainfall. But it had to do with the slowest part of the eye wall, which was primarily north of Lee County. And the greatest totals I had, it was Sarasota County, Charlotte County, especially along the coast. And that's why we had the historic flooding of the Peace River as well as the Mayaka River. Very interesting, because I, I remember at one point as I was watching the satellite view of the storm as it was passing, the top left side had those really dark red colors which I presume yep. link in some ways to precipitation. And then the bottom right side almost looked like you wouldn't even know there were clouds there, even though you could, clearly there were clouds there. And that explains what you just talked about, right? Correct. So the, the brighter shading that you saw, that was that intense pocket of heavy rainfall as well as strong winds, upwards well over 100. But it just parked itself and was just such a slow mover, basically a line from – Englewood, Manasota Key, Boca Grande, all the way to Arcadia, that quarter right there, as far as freshwater flooding, they had the worst. The saltwater flooding and the surge, that was Lee County. So there, you know, a lot of people were impacted to a certain degree by some element of the storm, whether it was the saltwater flooding or the freshwater flooding from the heavy rain. Hmm. Matt, does how Hurricane Ian unfolded and what we've seen uh, make you as a meteorologist wonder whether the current approach to predicting and warning residents and all the things that we do before a storm might need to be reconsidered or reworked somehow? It's something that I've thought about every single day since the landfall. 
And, you know, of course, I've been thinking is, is you know, and this is totally natural. I, I talked to uh, the chief meteorologist at NBC2, Allison Ray, and she said the same thing. You know, we, we talked to ourselves and we said, you know, is there anything that we could have done differently? And you always kind of think, you know, because the, the reality of the situation is in 2022, the death total is unacceptable. A hundred plus is a hundred plus too many. Our jobs as meteorologists is to protect life and protect property. And I'm, it's to me, it's not acceptable to have that death toll. And therefore, we need to improve our communication. What could we have done better? Did people focus too much on the center line of the cone? And that is one of the dynamics that I have given a lot of thought to and that I might be reworking into the 2023 season. Uh, I will tell you, and, I, and I'm going to confirm it maybe in the next several weeks or months, but I am leaning towards eliminating the center line of the cone because I think it sometimes can give a false sense of reassurance and can almost lead to complacency. And, you know, Lee County, and this is uh, this was debatable by some organizations, but I'm clearing it up right now and saying it was Lee County was 100% in the cone the entire time. It never left the cone. It was always in the cone, meaning that the, the center of circulation could have gone over Lee County, according to the National Hurricane Center forecast, at any point. So Lee County was never in the clear, and I think what happened was too many people focused on the center part of the line and the center part of the cone. They let their guard down despite me warning them not to. They got complacent. Then when it shifted at the last minute, they started to think, oh, darn, I, I didn't think of evacuation plans. I didn't. And this is not the case for everybody. I'm just saying for those who did not evacuate in mandatory evacuation zones, there were a lot of people who took it seriously. And I, and I applaud them for that. And I appreciate it. But there were, there were many who, and there were too many, to be quite frank with you, that were in mandatory evacuation zones and they didn't heed the warning. And unfortunately, the, the consequences for over 100 people, it was deadly. Yeah, I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit too, Matt. Uh, I would suggest that for people who live on barrier islands and in the coastal regions of evacuation zone A, that the discussion of a hurricane survival kit should be replaced by a hurricane evacuation kit. I think to talk in terms of a survival kit gives the false impression that you can ride out a storm, and we know that you can't ride out storm surge, um, right. especially storm surge of, of 15 feet. And so maybe in yeah. order to, to, to shift people's way of thinking and, and to, to try to, to, to shock them out of their complacency, uh, we should be talking in terms of, of what would we include in an evacuation kit. Uh, you know, we should have a suitcase ready. We should have our, our prescriptions and our pets' medications, uh, our pets' rabies mm -hmm. and, 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 and other records. Um, and we should have a list of the top five hotels that we would want to flee to. Or if we've got pets, you know, the top five pet-friendly hotels. And we should start making mm -hmm. people think in those ways so that they realize that when these storms approach and they get that evacuation order, riding out the storm is not an option. You know, there is no hurricane survival kit that's going to prepare them or get them through a storm surge event. Um, Tom, uh, any thoughts on another chapter to this book or perhaps another book? 
Yeah, well, actually, this is the first of probably three or four books. Um, I'm, I'm going to devote an entire book just to the 26 and, and uh, 1928 hurricanes, which in essence created the, uh, the the predicate for the dam that's been built around Lake Okeechobee that explains our current day water problems. Um, so, and, and perhaps an, an entire book just devoted to Hurricane Ian. If you're talking about historic hurricanes, this is one that people will be talking about for hundreds of years. All right. That is all the time we have. I want to thank my guests. Tom Hall is author of Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes. He's founder of ArtSouthwestFlorida.com and an arts correspondent for us here at WGCU. Tom, thank you so much for your time in this unfortunately super timely book. Well, the pleasure is mine. I wish it was under different circumstances. And Matt Devitt is chief meteorologist at Wink News, and he contributed to Tom's book. Matt, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. I also wish it was under different circumstances. Agree. Thank, thank you for your time, and thank you for having me. This conversation originally aired in October of 2022, less than three weeks after Ian. After Ian hit, Tom and his publisher decided to wait to release the book until around the storm's one-year anniversary because they felt that's when people would be thinking in terms of not only the storm, but also wanting to find answers as to why it was so devastating and whether we could experience a repeat with future storms. It's now set to release at the end of September. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director was Tara Calligan. She's also our social media coordinator. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.